This podcast is for grown-ups only. Some of the content may not be appropriate for little ears like mine. It dawned on me almost immediately afterward that I was like, I, I think I think he just shot himself. Do you see death in its truest and truest form not cleaned up not super nice and tidy in a casket welcome to diagnostic cops calling i'm your host anthony weaver and shortly uh, you will be able to hear my conversation with officer matt spittler but before we get into that i just wanted to kind of harken back to my episode last week where I spoke about why we should show the police deference uh, or humble submission and respect. And there were a couple incidents that happened uh, within the past week or just recently that that hit the news uh, that I wanted to kind of highlight uh, incidents that kind of remind me and should remind us uh, what we expect and what we ask for out of our police and why we should show them deference. So the first clip I'm going to play, uh, it's uh, L.A. County Sheriff's Deputy has pulled uh, a vehicle stop. He pulled the driver over for illegally using a cell phone while she was driving. And uh, just take a listen to what happened during this vehicle stop. And uh, just understand, too, that this recording was from a personally owned body cam that the Los Angeles Sheriff Deputy had on him to protect himself from false accusations. Uh, he didn't have a department-issued body cam. This was his his own body cam. So take a listen to this. I don't know why I'm being harassed today because I was going under the speed limit. I was going at 38. Yeah, yes, you are, ma'am. Good morning. Which is, and the speed limit is 40, and I was going 38, so why are you harassing you me? You are correct. I pulled you over because... Because you're a murderer. Because uh, yes, I started to record because you can't you're a murderer. Be a, you can't be on your cell phone I, I while you're driving. I was on my phone. I was recording you because you scared you can't, me. You can't use your cell I phone while you're recording. I can record you. May I have your driver's license? I, it's, it's at my apartment. What's your apartment? It's at my home. I'm just taking my son to his Do you therapy. have a, Do you have your driver's license? I, it, I mistakenly left it at home. Do you have a picture of your driver's license? Yes, I do. May I have it? And can you call your supervisor, please? Because I, I already did. He's on his way. Good, because you're a murderer. Okay. And so you're giving me a cell phone ticket? Is that why you're harassing me? Not harassment. Yeah. I, I am enforcing the law. I now. have a right to and record the police when they're harassing me. By all means. But you can't do it while you're driving. I was, I can, I wasn't, doesn't texting or none of that. Do you have, and you had that you picture? you scared me and made me think you were going to murder me. Okay, well, I'm sorry you feel that way. Well, you're, that's not just a feeling. You're a murderer. Okay. Can you zoom in on that for me, Sure. Jim? Thank you. And I'm perfectly legal, and I'm a teacher. So oh. there. Congratulations. Murderer. You're a murderer. What's your last name? I can't see that there. Well, if here you, you go, murderer. Stop shaking. Zoom in on that for no, me, No, because huh? you're scaring me. Oh, you're threatening to kill me and my son. Can you give me okay. the, the well, you, you, I'll tell you what, you keep smiling, yeah, you're on camera. You keep, you're, th you're trying to threaten to kill me. I'm I not didn't smiling, say that. you're the one who's crazy. Hold that still, I can't see that. Uh, is this your car? Yes, it is. And you're trying to say I stole my own car because you're jealous? Yeah, is that what I don't that's think about? so. You wait for me right here, okay? You're jealous? 
location. All you need to do is just get your signature. He's only citing you for using your cell phone while you're driving. That's it. Here you go, ma'am. Sign inside for the red box right a, there. For him being a Mexican racist. What is that name? Gas. Sign the citation, ma'am. Here you go, Mexican racist. You're always going to be a Mexican. You'll never be white. You know that, right? You'll never be white, which is what you really want to be. You there you go, be dear. White. Have you, a good day. You want to be white First and foremost, I just want to give props out to uh, this Los Angeles or L.A. County uh, sheriff's deputy. Unbelievably staying calm uh, during this stop. This type of verbal abuse happens every day to officers. Uh, you usually don't hear about it unless the officer loses their cool. If the officer does something wrong or acts unprofessionally, uh, obviously it, it hits the news a lot faster. But this type of stop is not abnormal. This type of interaction attitude uh, was actually a normal occurrence when I was on the job. Um, and and I'll, I'll admit that sometimes I handled it well and sometimes I didn't. Uh, it's extremely hard to maintain your professionalism during a traffic stop like this or during any type of interaction with a person of the public who acts like this or treats you like this. Uh, I also want to just point out that she had, or it appears, uh, based on some of the things she said, she has her son in the car with her. So her son is hearing this. Her son is being taught how he should treat the police. Uh, this is a huge problem in our culture. It's a huge problem in the areas where I worked, where the children that were being brought up and raised, and I use that word raised very loosely, were being taught to hate the police. Uh, we're being taught that the police were the bad guy. That's a huge problem in our, in our culture, and I just wanted to point that out about the stop. I also wanted to point out that the, the female uh, who goes on this rant, she has a history of filing false complaints against the uh, Los Angeles County Sheriff's uh, Department. So uh, she kind of has this kind of her MO, um, act like this and file false complaints against the police. She's also a teacher. Uh, I don't believe it's come out yet where she teaches or what grade she teaches or if she's a professor at a college or what she does. But, um, you know, obviously for a teacher to, to act like that is just completely unacceptable. Uh, she's already filed a complaint against this Lost uh, this L.A. County uh, sheriff's deputy. She's already filed a complaint against him. And uh, luckily, he had his own body cam uh, so that he can fight off that complaint. And if you remember uh, me saying in earlier episodes, it's not uncommon to have false complaints made against uh, you as a police officer. It happens all the time. And so luckily, he spent the money to have a body cam so that he can refute uh, the complaint she filed. Uh, yeah, good luck. Good luck with your complaint, lady. All right, the second clip I'm going to play, um, it came from uh, the clip, the specific clip I'm playing came from Police Watch YouTube channel. And uh, it's it's a officer by the name of Officer Samuel Flowers, who has two and a half years with the department, uh, that department being the Oklahoma City Police Department. He's on patrol. Um, I believe he was driving to a disturbance. And uh, while he's driving, another driver targeted him for assault. Uh, purposely 
uh, wrecking into it multiple times. So a driver who was driving on this on the same street uh, just began began wrecking into him, uh, hit him multiple times. Uh, the final time he hit him, disabled Officer Flowers' cruiser badly enough that he couldn't drive it any longer. He also uh, was initially trapped in his cruiser. The suspect then approaches Officer Flowers' cruiser uh, with a handgun and begins to shoot at Officer Flowers. And uh, Officer Flowers responds uh, with uh, deadly force um, to try to stop that attack. Uh, the suspect is then taken into custody after being hit by Officer Flowers' return fire. Uh, Officer, Fl- Officer Flowers returns fire with a patrol rifle. He doesn't uh, kill the suspect, but he does injure him, uh, from what I understand. And other officers arrive on the scene were, were able to take the suspect into custody. couple things to point out about uh, this audio clip. Just listen to how calm Officer Flowers is uh, as he communicates on the radio. And also, just to point out to you, the, the quieter pops you'll hear are from the suspect shooting at the officer, and then the louder ones are from Officer Flowers engaging the suspect uh, with his um, patrol rifle. So I'll play this for you now. It is, it is narrated uh, by this Police Watch YouTube channel, uh, which is helpful, but yeah, just give it a listen real quick. In the early morning hours of May 1st, Officer Flowers was driving south on Martin Luther King Boulevard on his way to an unrelated disturbance call. I had a guy that just tried to run into my car. He's coming up behind me now. The suspect, Quinton Pace, was also driving south on Martin Luther King Boulevard and struck Officer Flowers' vehicle several times. He's coming back at me again now. Yeah, he just hit my car. He's taken off northbound again. Looks like it's going to flip around again. Both vehicles were disabled at Northeast 52nd Street. I'm trapped in the vehicle. Officer Flowers was trapped inside his vehicle after the collision. Mr. Pace exited his vehicle with a gun and began firing at Officer Flowers while he was still inside his vehicle. Officer Flowers fired his rifle through the patrol car's windshield and driver's side window striking Mr. Pace and stopping his actions. Shortly thereafter, a respondent officer was able to place Mr. Pace in custody. Yeah, I got some minor cuts, but I think I'm okay. Officer Flowers was taken to a local hospital to be treated for minor injuries he sustained during the collision. So in regards to this uh, audio clip, in this type of situation, uh, any officer will never feel like they had too much training uh, because a moment like this could end your life. So you don't go into a moment like this wishing you had less training. You're always going to wish you had more training. And people talk, oh, the, the police officer's training is, is too focused on deadly force incidents. It's too, fo- it's too uh, focused on combat style training, um, that sort of thing. Listen, in those moments, you cannot have enough training uh, for those things. Um, 99% of the time, you don't need it. But in those times when you do need it, uh, you're, you're going to want all the training you can get in regards to it. You can never train too much for something like this. Um, the other thing I'll point out is that with that training, uh, it, it costs money. And the main cost of that is having enough officers to train. I can't tell you how many times 
I was in the middle of training and had to leave that training because a call came in. So if you don't have enough officers to be handling the call volume, if you don't have enough officers to be out on patrol while other officers train, it becomes just a lot more difficult to train. So you you hear this complaint a lot that there's too much money being used for law enforcement training or that the training should be different um, or it should be focused on other things. Officers need to know how to handle a lot of different types of calls, a lot of different types of things. Uh, some of that training needs to be with, you know, knowing how to talk and communicate with people, but some of that training needs to know how to get after it and and protect themselves from death or serious bodily harm or protect other people from death and serious bodily harm. And so all that training takes time and all that time means that there needs to be other officers that can handle calls and do the job needed on patrol so that those in training can actually train. And that takes money. So when we hear all these ridiculous conversations about reform and all these things that need to be happening, uh, mainly including defunding the police, it, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy in that by defunding the police and taking money away from them and not allowing them to hire more officers, you're actually going to fulfill your idea that there's so many problems within the police departments that that these agencies are corrupt, that they aren't well trained. If you defund them or or chop the amount of people they have uh, working, or chop the amount of money they have to be able to train, that that you think it's bad, it's it's going to get a whole lot worse because the training officers need is is paramount to being able to do their job correctly. So that's just uh, one thing I wanted to point about this officer. Officer Flowers did an amazing job. Um, obviously his training kicked in. I mean, he, he did everything he needed to do to, to, uh, to save his life. So I'm glad he's okay. And I thought he did a great job. So yeah, I just wanted to highlight those two incidents, um, that just happened recently and just, uh, yeah, I don't know. I saw them. I was like, you know what? I'm just going to throw the audio clips of these in, uh, just to help people, you know, hear and understand some of the things officers are dealing with uh, that happen uh, every single day uh, in this country. And again, it just it's uh, just trying to highlight officers doing their job well. We always hear about when an officer does his job poorly. Uh, we always we always hear about that, but sometimes we don't hear uh, these news stories. And hopefully, um, you know, I don't know if, if you heard these news stories or not, but uh, maybe me sharing it is is the first time you've heard them, but so be it. Uh, just get the word out there and, and highlight some officers doing the job well. Show us why we should have a level of deference for police officers, because the things they are doing uh, are incredible. Every single day, uh, they are doing incredible things. Okay, let's jump into my conversation with Officer Matt Spittler. My guest on this episode is a 15-year veteran of a local police department. He is currently a patrol officer, and on this episode, he's going to talk to me about some of the experiences he's had on the job and how he wrestles with carrying out his duties in light of his faith. Uh, he's here on his own volition, 
and is not representing his department. The things discussed on this episode are his own, and I'm honored that he has agreed to speak with me for this episode. I'd like to welcome Officer Matt Spittler to the podcast. Matt, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? Awesome. Um, it's always uh, it's always different when I have someone on the episode that I don't uh, know very well, and you you are one of those people we we just met uh, actually since I started the podcast. We started having some conversations and uh, that have been encouraging to me, and hopefully they've been encouraging to you too. And uh, so yeah, just kind of like over the last like probably couple, several months, couple months, uh, you know, developed a little bit of a friendship and I was like, yeah, let's, let's, uh, let's have you on. Let's see what happens. I guess if it's terrible, like it'll just <laughs> never see the light of day, you know, no well, one will ever hear it. I appreciate, I appreciate you having me on and, um, yeah, I think it's, it's been great so far. So it's been great listening so far. And I think, uh, you have a message that a lot of people, uh, number one, need to hear and, and really quite frankly find interesting as well. So yeah. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So obviously you're a police officer. We, we said that in the opening or I said that in the opening, but you also have like this side hustle thing that, that, uh, is interesting to me. What, it, what is it? <laughs> um, so I've actually had a few different side hustles, uh, in the last couple of years. Uh, I, I sold some car parts on eBay uh, last year, 2020, and I had some fun with that. Basically, I mean, it's not really too sophisticated. I was pulling parts off of Facebook Marketplace from all over the country and uh, reselling on eBay for a profit. Uh, so I kind of got tired of that. It was a little bit hard to find parts on a consistent basis. So I it was really just thinking, what else can I do? Uh, so I started door dashing, uh, as weird and maybe, yeah, simplistic as that might sound. I started door dashing a few months ago. It was actually after one of my shifts. I was like, you know, I'm going to go try this for uh, a night and just see, see if I can make it work. And I think I ended up taking home like 60 bucks or something that night for a couple hours. And I was like, wait a minute, if, if I do this often and actually put some time into it, I can make some, some money on this. So yeah, I've been doing it for the last couple months and uh, my schedule allows me to do that. Right. And uh, so it's been good. It's been good for a side hustle. And it's kind of fun. It's mindless. It's, it's. Uh, I mean, people make fun of me for it, but I don't care. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's fun. I mean, honestly, it's mindless and it, you can really start and stop whenever you want, uh, which is certainly a perk. And uh, yeah, for side for side income, it's, it's stress relieving because yeah. it doesn't require me to do anything other than pick up people's food and make them happy. Right. I, I make people happy. I bring them their food. And of course that's going to make people happy. So, right. So who, when you say people make fun of you, you're talking like guys on the job, right? Oh, of course. I mean, but you're, I mean, you're always going to get made fun of guys on the job. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's part of it. And I don't think my friends or family really have said anything. Uh, they, they actually find it kind of interesting, but yeah, there's definitely people on the job who, like why are you why are you doing that like why are you wasting your time and i'm like well because i can make money doing it i mean and it's you can do it on your own schedule so yeah i don't it doesn't really bother me uh it right. doesn't really bother me what people think so i uh, just go out and do my own thing yeah if you're if you're in law enforcement you uh can't really care what people think because you just get oh man you just get destroyed like guys are just ruthless uh, with what they what they will they'll find little things in your personality or little things that you do and they'll just pick 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 and uh um i don't know why it is i i think it's just because it's you know it's just uh it's a way to just just 
goad people. Well, I mean, it's 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 a career that's filled with like a plus 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 type personalities. Right. So, um, <laughs> and and you you really just kind of uh, yeah, you don't get away with much. Uh, you, you everybody kind of knows everything about everybody, and yeah, so. It's fine. I'm sure there's probably a little bit of insecurity there with people too, or maybe yeah, there could uh, be. But and and we all have, we all have that in some aspects, I guess. But yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's cool. So why why have you always like wanted to do like a side hustle thing? Like why why have you always felt like okay, I'm I'm a police officer, but I kind of want to do something over here. Um, in the last couple of years, I've gotten much more. Uh, much more intentional with finances. I mean, admittedly in my twenties, there was a running joke at, at work that if I had a car for more than a year, that there was something wrong and that I needed to get a new one at some point. Like they're like, Oh, you've had that car for about a year now. Instead of changing the oil, are you going to go buy a new one? Uh, so <laughs> that was kind of me in my twenties. And, uh, yeah. So I've just been a lot more intentional in my finances and that's, that's why I kind of have goals that, uh, I want to reach. And, and it's also, it's just, it really is stress relieving for me. It's something else to get into. Uh, yeah, my hobbies as well, but just a way to make additional money is some reason or other for me, stress relieving. So that's right. why I do it too. And it doesn't, like you said, it doesn't take a lot of mental effort. You can kind of just chill out a little bit. Now I w- see, I think I would be stressed because I would be waiting for that moment where some idiot tried to rob me. Do you carry a gun when you do it? Um, <laughs> yeah, well, I do at times. Uh, I, I do at times. Not every, not every night or not every day. But, That's crazy. Uh, I, I actually got an order. I have a funny story, a funny DoorDash story, if I may. Go. Um, the, uh, it was a couple, yeah, it was not that long ago. I was, I was dashing, if I may use that term, uh, <laughs> to make myself look even stupider. But, um... I was out there running and uh, I got an order for, I believe it was, it was like Mifflin Street or something. Okay. Uh, don't quote me on this because I'm not 100% sure, but I th- think it was Mifflin Street. And the directions in the order stated, come inside the cemetery fence. And I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> what am I doing? Where am I taking this order? Um, and that night I actually was caring. So uh, I, I felt... Uh, felt much safer taking a delivery of food inside a cemetery but that is indeed where i delivered this order and everything went serious? fine yeah everything went fine there was no issues with it and now was this after dark oh yeah yeah it was later at night okay yeah. Yeah. and who who did like what was the age of the people you were delivering to like was uh, it just one one it guy was, uh, one guy that came to the door he's probably in his 40s uh he was fine but i mean i hightailed it out of there as soon as i could i was like i'm okay. out of here man like here's your food but but he oh. was in the cemetery? There was actually a house inside the cemetery. Okay. Inside the cemetery perimeter fence, there was there was a house. And okay. I was like, all right, I mean, I'm going to this place. But I, I actually thought on the way there, I'm like, should I text somebody I know? and be like, hey, here's where I'm going. If you never see me again, <laughs> uh, this is where I've been. <laughs> this is where I'm headed. But it was fine. I uh, just you know, delivered his food. He was fine and no issues. And yeah. So, yeah. But it was weird. I mean, there was gravestones everywhere, all over the place. Right. And I'm like, I didn't even know there were houses inside yeah, I'm trying to, but. I'm trying, as you're talking, I'm trying to think, and this was in Lancaster City? Yes. I said, I think I said Mifflin. I think it was Strawberry. Was it okay. Strawberry Street yep. or something? I know exactly yes. where you're, yep. Yeah, yeah. I just put it all together. Yep. I know exactly yep. uh, where you're talking about. So the the other thing that I needed to bring up, because this, this one, this is going to catch you off guard, but do you, you have a friend, Brandon Souter? 
I do. Okay. I do. So he reached out to me. Check this out. He reached out to me the other day. Um, I don't I don't know Brandon at all. I don't know this this guy at all. So he reaches out to me and he's like, Hey, um, he had heard one of the episodes where we were talking about humor and the use of dark humor to deal with the stress of the job. And he had heard a podcast uh that a Navy SEAL was on and he's like, Hey, check this out about thirty minute mark. And um and then he's like if it's something useful and you can use it in an episode, uh, which, which it is, it was, it was a, a, a good uh, a bit of information about how humor is used in those high-stress incidents and stuff. But he's like, if you, if you use that in one of your episodes, uh, give me a shout-out so that I can tell Matt that I, I was on the show, that I made the show. So I I hit him back up. I'm like, listen, man, I I appreciate the 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 information. I'll check it out. And I said, I guess you're just gonna have to tune in, keep tuning in to see if you ever get a shout out. So I figured, <laughs> perfect to do it on this episode with you here, so that you're actually on the episode. He's getting the shout out, and together you you basically are both getting a participation trophy, uh, which is how we should. This is how we do it in America now. Oh, everyone, everyone wins. Everyone wins. Everybody gets a participation trophy. Uh, yeah, everybody wins. So Brandon, thanks a lot for that. <laughs> so hopefully that, that uh, means something for him. And maybe the next time you see him, you can give him a hard time about it. But um, I don't, I don't, I don't know you, Brandon. I'm sure you're a cool guy, but, and I'm not making fun of you. I'm just like yes. using, using you. Uh, he's, a great, he's a great guy. He really that's, is. That's cool. So you're, uh, you're in law enforcement, the department you work for, how, how many, like, how big is it? Like, do you, do you know the general, uh, like square mileage you cover and and how many full-time guys you got and gals? You know, I just, I think it's in the lower 20 square miles. I know it's in the twenties square of square mileage. Um, uh, if I'm not mistaken, I think it's, it might even be high twenties. Uh, I have not looked at that for a while. It's kind of something that kind of you know, for a while, then you kind of forget. Right. But um, yeah, and we have, I think, right around 34 or 35 total sworn uh, officers in the department. Are there always more than one of you on each shift? Or do you ever have a shift where it's only you? No, we have minimum of four patrol officers on at one time, uh, six patrol officers on a, sh- on a patrol shift. And then obviously that doesn't count administration or detectives uh, or the specialized unit guys. Uh, but yeah, we have minimum of four on every patrol shift. So there's, that's a stipulation that we go by. Cool. I know there's, I wasn't sure if this was how your department is, but I know there's departments out there within Lancaster County that uh, don't have very many people at all. And, and then on some uh, night shifts, there's only one of them there. I mean, they may have other jurisdictions coming in to help them, but I wasn't sure if that's how yours was or not. No. And I always thought, I was I always felt fairly fortunate and still feel fortunate that we always not only have other officers working at the same time in in our department but we're basically surrounded by full-time agencies all around our jurisdiction. So it's always kind of a good feeling knowing that if something goes down or more like when something goes down there's there's always other agencies around that can pretty quickly be there as well. Right. How did you get into law enforcement? I mean, how, you know, I, I use, usually ask this of all my guests, did they have family? Like what drove you into the field? I did not have any family uh, that, that 
was in the job. Uh, it was a thing where basically when I was like five years old, I was drawing police cars. Um, and so I kind of always knew this was the job that I wanted to get into. I always had a passion for it. I mean, I was the kid who, if there was an episode of Rescue 911 or Real Stories of the Highway Patrol on, I mean, I was like glued to the TV. Uh, and if I may add, I still actually watch those reruns on YouTube sometimes. <laughs> uh, really great quality. Like the, the YouTube, it'll play out of like the one side of the speaker because it's not in true stereo or whatever they right. call that. So, right. um, And so I always kind of knew I wanted to get into the profession. And uh, I think the professional aspect of the job of putting a uniform on every day and serving, I know that might sound a little cliche, but it really was the truth for me. I thought the the service aspect of being a professional and serving people was just, just awesome. And I just wanted that so bad. And, you know, certainly the aspect of, you know, locking up bad guys and, you know, driving a car with red and blue lights and sirens. And I mean, that, that's certainly, I think for most guys kind of resonates as well, at least for a time period. Um, but yeah, so growing up, I always knew that's what I wanted to do. I went to my senior year of high school is when I first really was able to take the first step of, of getting into the career. Uh, I went to the uh, Willow Street Votech law enforcement class. It was before they changed it to, I think now they have it as law enforcement EMS and fire. Yeah, I believe so. All in one class. And they class. also call it the Career and Technology Center now too. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So I went down there. That was law enforcement only for my senior year. They just focused on law enforcement related education. Just a kind of a precursor, nothing too serious. And um, then started going to Hack. Uh, I actually attended the Hack campus in Lebanon because it was a little bit closer to where I was living at the time. And uh, in the midst of that, got deployed uh, overseas with the Army, uh, the PA Army National Guard. And so that kind of put my education on hold and uh, went over and did that overseas and then came back, finished my degree and uh, I think the current de- the department I work with was the second department I uh, applied for. It was okay. b- before the consortium testing went into place. It was just applying for that specific department. And yeah, so I got hired. And uh, yeah, it, it's crazy to think that it's been that long, but it right. definitely has been. The math says it has been. So. Right, right. And so did you just get an associate's degree then in college? I did. I just got an associate's. I always had the desire to be that young, 21-year-old cop out there. I have no clue why, but I just thought that would be cool. Uh, So yeah, I actually was 22 when I first started. But uh, yeah, that's uh, some people were telling me, man, you should really go get your bachelor's. And other people were like, well, you really don't need it. So I am not necessarily a huge fan of school. It It wasn't awful for me. I didn't hate it. But it's not something I enjoy by any means. So I, I just decided to take the associates and, and go and try to get hired. Right. The more and more uh, guys I interview uh, on the podcast, the more and more I'm hearing that cops generally did not like school. <laughs> I wonder what that is. Like, I did not like school either. Parents, hide your kids right now. But I, I literally, I thought it was a giant waste of my time. And when I was in high school, I, I got to a point where I, and I got good grades. I was a decent student, but I just felt like I was wasting my time 
because I didn't I didn't feel like I was going to really use anything I was learning in the real world. Um, I, I guess that's probably not completely correct, but it's not. It's probably not. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's the way the majority of us probably view that. I mean, it's kind of something you go do in order to make yourself a better candidate because let's face it nowadays, you're probably not going to get hired if you don't have a degree, uh, depending on where you're going. But, uh, that would, yeah, that would probably hold true for most places anyways. I think it depends. I mean, I think a lot of the police departments around here, you don't need a degree. Uh, you get military points a lot of times. Um, the state police, you definitely either need a degree or military. So when you, when you, uh, went to Votech your senior year, did you kind of do that just to get out of the school building and try to do something that you were interested in? Or were you just like, Hey, once I get to be a senior, I'm going to do that. Um, no, it was definitely out of interest sake, not necessarily trying to get out of the school type setting. Uh, it was definitely because I was interested in it. I, okay. It was, it wasn't, it was running to something, not running away from something. Uh, yeah, I definitely had interest in it. And I was like, well, this is a no brainer. Yeah. Who, who was your teacher there? Do you remember? I think it was James Yakabachi, I oh, believe. Wow. I believe. He, did he work for a department anywhere? I think he retired a while. I have no clue. I don't remember. Okay. Uh, yeah. I would have to Google that. So. Wow. Yeah. No, no. That I'm just curious because I went to, I was actually, I went to Brownstown Votech to their law enforcement program. And a guy there by uh, Jim, I believe his first name was Jim Benedict used to work in Lancaster City. I think he retired as a captain or a lieutenant in Lancaster City, and he taught the class. He was a salty, salty old guy. I don't know if he's still around or not, but um, yeah, I, I liked him. He would, he would do this thing in class where he would start like telling a story, and then you could real, you realized as he was telling the story that he realized he probably shouldn't be telling the story to high school students. So then he would take a story that was quickly going in the R-rated direction and try to bring it back into like a PG, you know? Um, Which might be difficult to do sometimes, right. especially for an old timer. But uh, yeah, he was, he was really good. It was, it, was, it, was, it was cool to do that. And I, I was definitely interested in it, but I definitely wanted to get out of the high school building. I was like, if I stay in the high school building my senior year my my grades are going to tank so it for me it was a win-win i was getting to do something that i was interested in and also saving my gpa probably yeah i was just thinking not too long ago actually i was like i wonder how many of those those people i was in that class with my senior year actually oh you don't in know the profession in law enforcement i i think one was okay. it, or is for sure so you also you said you were in the military um, are you still in the National Guard? I'm not. I okay. I did the uh, six years active is what they call it, and then you actually go into two year inactive period where you don't do anything other than the fact that they can. I guess if they really need somebody, they can call you back to active uh, active service. And uh, I did not get called up, so I joined in. I think it was actually September. 2001 really uh yeah not necessarily because of anything that was going on at the time uh but it was just that's just the way it worked okay and um yeah so i did my six years active which in the national guard active is just one weekend a month two weeks training out of the year unless you get deployed and i got deployed i believe it was 2003 I think it was February or March 2003 
and yeah, we got deployed to Kuwait first. We went there for uh, a holding, a, a time of holding basically until they get us ready to be in Iraq. And then uh, my unit, which was a finance unit, went to Iraq and basically basically ran a bank is what we did. Uh, service soldiers pay, ran a bank, dispersed money when needed, and uh, yeah, that's what we did over there. Hmm, that I I didn't even know that there's groups of people in the military that even do something like that. Well, I got a little lucky. My brother uh, was in the same unit and he joined a year before me. And so I guess I scored high enough on the ASVAB that they were like, well, if you want to be in the same unit as your brother, you can be. And I was like, well, yeah, sure. That works. So it was a local unit. They're stationed in Lebanon. Uh, so yeah, I was like, absolutely, why not? So that's what we did. And uh, now we did not go out on any kind of missions together. They wouldn't let us. In fact, we actually had another. This is ironic because our unit was only 20-some people. And we had two sets of brothers in, really? the, in, the, in, that, in that unit. So they would not let any of us go out together with our brother if we were going off the base, which oh. makes sense in case something would happen. But uh, yeah, it was, it was kind of cool being over there with, with him. Uh, just, yeah, it's cool. Yeah, we shared that experience together. It's cool. Yeah. Now, is he, he's older than you? I'm a assuming. little bit. Yeah, he's a okay. year older. So, okay. Yeah. And, uh, and the whole unit was kind of like this finance unit? So your brother would have been part of that finance unit then too? Yeah, we, we served. It was basically like the northeast portion of the soldiers who were over in Iraq. Uh, we, were, we were right against the Iran border. I think it was FOB Caldwell uh, is what we were. If, I'm sure if we could look it up, it would be, it's, it's right on the Iran border. And so, yeah, we serviced basically the Northeast portion of any soldier that was in Iraq. And we basically entered all their, you get, you get hazard duty pay and combat pay and those, all those entitlements get manually entered into the system, or at least they did then. And so we had to manually enter all those soldiers pay entitlements. So they got paid correctly, fix any pay issues, distribute and disperse money to soldiers who needed, you don't need a lot of money when you're deployed. I mean, you're not, you're right. not, you're not out in the town buying, buying much. Uh, but if, if soldiers wanted to buy, some food somewhere or they could, they could go do that and they would need some cash in order to do that. So now you mentioned before we came on that you, uh, obviously you weren't out doing any missions or anything being in the finance unit, but you mentioned that you were close by when an IED exploded or at least in the vicinity. What, what was that all about? Yeah, we, we actually, we didn't do missions per se, but not at least in what, most people would consider military missions. Uh, we did, I was part of a, a group of, in our unit that went out and serviced different uh, bases, smaller bases. They were called FOBs. And so it was sometimes a convoy of only like three or four military vehicles. And these were, we still had Humvees and they basically up-armored these Humvees. Like they put these doors that were like three inches thick on them. They weren't really all that great as far as protection for the soldiers. And unfortunately, I think the numbers probably show that of soldiers that, that, were, that were hurt and killed over there during those times. But they just did not stand up well to 
to IEDs. They didn't. Uh, but so yeah, and and we were going from our main base to another base on a pretty small convoy. It was during the day. That's the only time that we traveled. And uh, I just remember I was I was a driver, so I was driving our Humvee. And the protocol at the time was if an IED goes off on the side of the road, if you're in front of the IED, you proceed forward and stop. And if you're behind the IED at the time, you stop and then reverse a slight amount and then, and then basically get out and pull a perimeter and just look for people that are going to ambush you basically. Right. And yeah, we were going down the road and, um, this IED went off on the left side of the road. It was embedded in this pile of dirt, which is pretty much the only thing that's on the side of the road in Iraq is dirt. Uh, they don't really have vegetation. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and so the, it was right in the middle of the convoy and the entire rest of the convoy went forward. I actually stopped because it was right in front of us. And so I backed up. I think there was only me, uh, our vehicle and maybe in one other vehicle behind us. So we backed up and stopped. And luckily, whoever placed it there, it was in this really small village, uh, very, very small village. There was only a handful of people in there. But I just remember getting out of the, out of the vehicle and basically getting in a prone position, pulling security and just have all this gear on. We have like full body armor and helmet and it's 120 degrees. Uh, and you're like, somebody just tried to kill me. I mean, somebody, it was very humbling. It was like somebody literally just tried to kill us. Um, and it was like, yeah, I was pretty young at the time and it was just a humbling thought that, and you're like somebody that can see me right now. Like I'm probably looking at them right. and you know, who knows how they set it off. They set it off with a cell phone or a garage door, who knows right. door opener or whatever. But so yeah, we stayed there and, uh, stayed watching the perimeter until uh, I guess I don't even know what they're called but the explosive unit of whatever yeah I'm not even sure what they would have even been called but they came and ensured that it was it was fully uh, that, it, that it was it was not in danger of going off again in any way shape or form and so then we went on our way and yeah, that was that that was that now did it cause any damage to any vehicles in in your line it did, and it actually went off directly beside the vehicle that was in front of me, okay. and it looked bad because they were completely uh, covered in in dust and dirt, and it it was like I was I thought that they might be pretty badly injured or hurt, but they whoever placed it placed it too far. Luckily for us, unfortunately, they placed it too far into the back of this hill side, and that just took the entire impact. Uh, it was super loud. In fact, the there was a I think he was a uh, staff sergeant or sergeant first class that was in the back of the Humvee that I was driving. And I don't know, this dude had the quickest reflexes because when this IED went off, I kid you not. I mean, I'm thinking, man, we might be dying here. This dude's taking pics of this IED going off with his <laughs> digital camera. Are you serious? Yeah. He actually had a pic that she showed later. He's like, look at the picture I got. And I'm like, that's not the thing that I was thinking about when this ID is going off beside us on the side of the road. But he absolutely took, he placed his arm up in the air, took a, took a pick of this uh, ID going off on the side of the road. Wow. Yeah. That's, uh, that's pretty crazy. I don't think there's anything in me that would have been thinking about taking a no, picture. No. 
I'm not he, sure what that says about he's, him. He's probably but. a big social media guy these days, don't you think? <laughs> so when did you when did you get out of the military? Or you, I'm sorry, you said in 2003 you went over there. And did you were you over there for a full year there and get out in around 2004 back back in the states? It wasn't quite a full year. Uh, I think we were actually in Iraq, if I'm not mistaken, for eight eight months. Okay. Uh, so the deployment in general was probably slightly longer than that because we went to Fort Dix in New Jersey to mobilize and we had to do a whole bunch of things there. I just remember it was like ice cold there when we were doing this training. And it's like we're, we're training in an environment that's 20 degrees and we're going to an environment that's 120 degrees. This doesn't seem like it's necessarily good training. But uh, yeah, I think it was... It was about a year total, maybe even a little bit less than a year total from start of the actual deployment to the end of the actual deployment when we were going off what they call going off orders. Okay. Uh, but I think in, in country, I think it was like something around eight months. And then how soon after you got back did you get hired with the police department you're with? Well, I had to finish my associates and that took a little while. I was, I th- I was pretty far into my credits the credits that i needed but i know i need to finish up that uh the credits and uh it would have been i think a year and a half after that that i got hired year and a half maybe two years absolute max but i don't even think it was quite two years okay um and you never got you never got redeployed or anything like that no i think i was skating on thin ice uh maybe potentially get because it was still like there were still a lot of deployments happening back then so uh and that was the last thing I wanted to do was get deployed again when I was starting my new career uh, in the thing that I really wanted to be doing. So now, luckily, um, I did not get deployed again, and uh, I was able to to go full swing into law enforcement career. You uh, you mentioned earlier that getting on the job young, you always thought it would be cool to get on the job when you were 21. You said you ended up getting on the job when you were 22. Why Why did you think it would be core why was that like a goal to be on the job like right because in pennsylvania you have to be 21 to get hired i think you can start taking tests when you're 20 but you have to be 21 when you get hired so why was that like a goal for you i'm not sure i don't know if i was trying to prove something to myself or uh i would like to think and if you'd ask people that knew me back then i'd like to think i was never really a huge ego guy uh even on the job even right away at the beginning. But so I don't think it was that. I just think it was, I think it was something I just, it was just a goal of mine. I think I just wanted to be out there. I wanted to, I wanted to go do this and I wanted to do it at a young age. So I don't know. I'm not, I really never, never really thought about why that was important to me, but it was. Yeah. And you've been on patrol ever since you started, right? Correct. You've never been in any other unit, never been in detectives or anything like that. Correct. Yep. And is that by choice or if you had the opportunity to do uh, something else, would you? I don't think so. I think patrol is where I always desired to be. Um, I did think about maybe, I was like, maybe detectives would be something I'd be interested in at one point, but that was... That was years ago, and and honestly, uh, I think that somewhat slight interest has waned. I, I don't think that would be for me. I really don't. I think I would probably take the work home with me, and be really it would be really difficult for me to 
sleep at all. I'm already a terrible sleeper. So I think it would probably be even worse then. But no, I've, I've, I still, I still enjoy some aspects of patrol and just kind of enjoy the aspect of, you don't know what the shift holds and, uh, just that you're out there, you're by yourself, you're, and you can go out and serve people in different ways, every shift. And yeah, some of that passion has definitely, definitely subsided throughout my career for sure. Uh, but at the end of the day, I'm, I'm still really, really proud of what, what we do. And I'm really proud of what police officers in general do. And I have, yeah, I just have the utmost respect for everybody in this profession. And, uh, I just think patrol is, and it's what people think of when they think of cops. And, but there's obviously other important, uh, aspects of the job and jobs that, and, but yeah, for me, patrol was always my go-to. I just, I just, that's what I wanted to do. And that's, yeah, that's, that's, that's where I think I feel quite honestly, I think that's where I feel most competent. And I think that's kind of where my calling is and was are you the type of person you get comfortable in something and then it's hard for you to get out of that and try something new because then you have to like kind of relearn or you're not it's uncomfortable it's uncomfortable to learn something new yeah i i think so i think so i'm not a big change kind of guy uh i think i was as i've matured i think in all areas of my life i think that i'm kind of learning that change can be good i think it's it's it can be good i was actually talking to one of my best friends about this the other week and uh yeah things change priorities change and that's not necessarily a bad thing but yeah i'm definitely a person who doesn't it would probably resist i would definitely resist that slightly at yeah. first and uh but i don't i don't think it's all that i don't think that's necessarily the reason why i didn't deviate i think there's definitely something about patrol that's still a little intriguing. Uh, and I just think that that's, yeah, I think I do feel comfortable in it. Uh, but I also feel like that's, yeah, as long as I'm in this job, I do feel like that's where I'm, where I should be. Yeah. No, I loved patrol. Um, I, I, for me, it was kind of like what you said. It's the quintessential police officer job. It's, it's where the rubber meets the road. And, and you even talk, I've, you know, guys like, uh, detective Lowe and, and, uh, some other guys I had on, um, I think it was detective Lowe when I had him on, you know, he, he even made the statement like, I'm not even a real cop anymore or something. He is. And I, you know, I would, I would say, no, you definitely are, but you can definitely tell a difference between your guys who have been in detectives for a while and your guys that are still in the street. There's like a difference and how they just view the job, stress level, and I, I'm overgeneralizing here, you know. But yeah. um, you know, detective work uh, in the city, in Lancaster City, anyways, can be extremely stressful depending on your case. Well, their their case load, loads are high, but if they're working big cases or something like that. But generally speaking, there isn't that ongoing. Just uh, I don't even know what the word is. I don't want to, not drudgery, but that ongoing like grind of, of pushing a car and being out on the, on the street. Um, so there's the, you can see a difference sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, for sure. And, and I have the utmost respect for 
detectives or anybody that are that do the the aspects of the job other than patrol. I mean, I see how hard some of our detectives work and yeah, I have tons of respect for them. It's not there's certainly no at least in the environment that I work, there's no we're better than you or we're real cops you're not or anything like that. I think there's a a mutual level of respect there. So, um I know you weren't alluding to anything different than that. It's just yeah, yeah. I definitely have a respect for those guys. Just for me, it's just super I'm yeah. just super comfortable. And yeah, I just really do feel like that's probably what I'm I'm good at. And if if that's where that's something I'm good at. I feel like that's what I should probably just continue to do until until it's time to to hang up the cleats. Yeah. Yeah. What do you not like about patrol? <laughs> it's a slippery slope question. Uh, I think the schedule, as I'm getting older, the schedule of rotating shifts definitely, definitely uh, has, I could tell the difference physically a little bit in my body, even in the last year or so. And I just, I don't think that's a great, I, I know why we do it. I just, it's just, when I'm speaking about this, I'm speaking solely on the effect it has on our body. And yeah, I can feel, I can feel that a little bit, I think. And I try to, you know, I try to keep myself in pretty good shape and I try to get sleep and, but the bottom line is I don't think we were really created to work overnight in general. And then on top of that, I don't think we were created to swing back and forth between days and nights every two weeks. So right. And it's a full, complete 180 degree swing. Uh, so it's, that's, I think that is one of the main reasons. Um, patrol is, I would say, that one of the things I don't like about it. The other thing is, you just, I don't know, for me, I just get tired of dealing with the constant negative, the constant. Yeah, just the constant BS of society. I mean, right. it's, if I can be honest, it's just oftentimes petty stuff. And I'm a person who really does have a pretty positive outlook on life. And going into that job, it uh, <laughs> it's it's difficult to maintain that when all you're interacting with is negative. Right. And I always tell people, we don't get invited to birthday parties, you know? Yeah, so, absolutely. So, and if you do get invited to a birthday party, it's after someone stabbed someone. Right. It's like his <laughs> Uncle Joe was drinking too much and then he got angry and started a fight with... Yeah, so it's... Yeah, I'm not probably explaining that to the depths of what I could. It's just... it's. For me personally, and I can only speak for me, it's definitely worn on me. Um, the constant negative, the constant, you're seeing awful situations, that the worst of humanity, quite frankly, you're being immersed in sin um, and just, yeah, you're just being immersed in the worst of humanity and there's a cliche saying like, yeah, you're getting called to people in their worst, darkest hour. And that oftentimes is true. And I just think as a human being, that begins to wear on you, whether you realize it or not after a while. 
And yeah. whether you wear the uniform or not, that shiny badge doesn't necessarily protect you from uh, the natural effects of being immersed in those type of situations on a daily basis. Yeah. I think um, I think it's very true. I th- I thought of that one time you mentioned the badge. How you know you have this shiny badge, but if you if you turn around on the backside, it's all beaten up and dull, and that's generally kind of how I felt towards the end of my career. You know, I went in with this idea of, you know, hey, um, this is what I'm going to do, and I loved loved it, uh, but you know, the shiny front, you you slowly. You feel like your heart and your soul kind of turns to like the beaten, you know, just mess that's on the back end of the badge that no one, that no one sees because you are, you're just constantly like just engaging in just terrible situations with people. And really, quite honestly, you're really not able to solve them. Um, You can try to put a bandaid on them, um, but it just, it, it just wears on you after a while. Yeah, and I think it was uh, Chief Berkeyheiser who said that cops go to these terrible incidents, and if you're not the primary uh, officer on that incident, you oftentimes leave and get called to a neighbor dispute or a grass is too high complaint or a bicycle that's stolen or whatever, another call for service, and you haven't even processed the initial incident that was probably pretty impactful or could have been pretty impactful. Uh, And now you're focusing or trying to focus on this other lesser offense, certainly not as important as the previous one. And it's, it's natural for that individual to expect you to just come and soak that up and, and, well, this is the biggest problem that I have this day, so you need to handle this situation and fix it. And that's our job. But the human aspect of things comes in and you're still wrapped up in your mind, whether you know it or not, of that other incident and you're frustrated. It can get very frustrating to think, man, there's a dead person over there or there's there's a family that's in shambles and their kids are just in a horrible situation. and now this person over here is complaining about their neighbor's grass being too tall or their neighbors said something to them that they didn't like or whatever. I mean, there's a million different scenarios and I think that can get frustrating as well. Those type of situations can get frustrating as well, especially when they repeat themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Over and over again, the same people and, and, and yeah, you're, you're, you're supposed to remain professional and, handle that call to the best of your ability, but it is, it is really difficult to go into calls like that over and over again, uh, where basically grown adults are acting like little children. Well, you're not, you're not over exaggerating when you say you get calls because your neighbor, you know, my neighbor's grass is too high and I asked them to cut it and then they, they call me a bad word. So then I said a bad word back to them and then we just had bad words. Okay. What do you want me to do about that? Like literally you are a grown person. Like I, I can't like make that person be nice. You know, there's, there's literally nothing I I can do. And then if you don't handle it the way the one party wants you to handle it, then you're the bad guy. And then you go to the other party and you talk to them and they give you a completely different story. And if you don't handle it the way they want to, and sometimes I would just be like, 
see you later. I'm out. Like you guys figure it out. Like I, there's nothing I can, I can do for you. You called the wrong cop. Like, <laughs> like, I don't know what you want me to do for you. Yeah. Like sometimes I feel like you have to tell people you're an adult and you, I think it's okay to tell them you're an adult and this isn't, this is a problem that you should be able to figure out. And, right. and I, I, I don't think that's being unprofessional. I think that's being realistic with them. And, yeah. um, yeah, you can do it in a professional way. Yeah. And, and, and you're certainly, if there's a, if there's something you can mediate, then yeah, I, we try to do that. But right. yeah, we went down a rabbit trail there, but no, no, that's fine. It It's one of those things. It's just one of those little things about the job that it doesn't seem like that big of a deal, but it becomes a big deal when you deal with it for year, years and years and years. And you, like, I, you know, there were times in my career where completely unprofessional, like I would handle it in a completely unprofessional way and just, just lose, lose my mind and be like, I literally, I, there is nothing I can do for you. And, and I'm, I'm leaving. Like I would just, or, or you go to a call and, and someone would just be like screaming at you. And I'd walk in the house. What's what's the problem? And people would just be screaming at you. You literally could not even decipher what the problem was. And there were times where I'd say, if if you're just going to scream at me, uh, there's nothing I can do. If if you can calm down and tell me what's going on instead of screaming at me and screaming at the other party in the other room. And sometimes that wouldn't happen. I'd just be like, when you can figure out how to talk to another person in a proper way, call me back, but I'm leaving. Right. And I think one of the things that, that I learned very early on, and I think this is probably something that new cops need to learn early on is people don't respond well to the robotic, super uber fake professional commentary they want to know that you're a human being that can help solve their problems and you have to be able to communicate in a way that they look at you as a human not this robotic figure who just walked in with you know all this gear on and everything and i think people respond at least i found that communication is just so important and like you said i mean i don't think that's a bad thing when you're telling people that because they look at you as a human being then and not this robotic figure that is just this fairy tale. I don't know what people have in their minds sometimes. And I think most people have a realistic outlook, but it's just, I think that if you communicate in a, just a regular conversation way, as opposed to this super almost fake, yes, sir, no, sir. People need to, people need to know you're human and they, right. they, they definitely, they definitely will oftentimes react in a way that will be not only more compliant, but I feel like the problems will get solved much quicker right. when they know that this officer or those officers are human beings and not just these government robots coming in the right. door. And I think I learned too through my career uh, probably it took me a lot longer than it should have that going into a place like that where it's just chaos and just adding to the chaos by yelling yourself a lot. I found that one of the best things I could do is if someone was just screaming at me, I'd just be like, why are you yelling at me? I'm standing right here. Like you don't need to yell at me and just talk calmly 
and force them to actually lower their level to even hear what I was saying was helpful at times. Sometimes it was sometimes dropping a curse word was what was yeah. needed to get someone in line and have them have a seat. Um, you know, and yeah. Some people don't respond to any other language other than that. Yeah. I mean, that's the, that's, there are times, that's yeah. the truth. You just, they, they literally won't hear anything else you have to say unless you speak to them in a language that they understand. And I know that honestly, to some people that probably sounds like a cop out, no pun intended, or a lie of some sort, but it's really the truth. I mean, there's just some people that will not, will not respond to any other language other than harsh <laughs> language. Yeah. Uh, and that's the truth. And oftentimes, and sometimes they won't even respond to that. Right. But definitely it had times when, yeah, like you, you, you have to speak to them in a language that they're going to understand. And it's not putting them down. It's just, okay, well, my option A didn't work. So I'm going to go to option B and this is option B. And you speak to them in a language they can understand. And oftentimes they look at you a little different. They listen to what you have to say. And bottom line is you're trying to resolve the problem the best you can. Like you said earlier, you're not going to, as much as we'd love to, we would love to fix the problem. But I always tell people, I think, yeah, some of my coworkers have probably heard this hundreds of times, but we're not going to, we can't wave a magic stick around and fix a problem that took years to evolve in one night. We right. just can't fix that problem in one night. Wish we can, wish we could, but it's just not feasible. Right. So, Because when we get called, the problem has exploded to a point where police need to intervene. But you're right, it's been going on for years and years and years. And uh, you may you may even be going into a situation and be getting used as a pawn in that situation. Like I, I would get super aggravated getting called to to things where, you know, you were you know, women were trying to use you to arrest dudes for, you know, protection from abuse order violations, but yet they were in the same house with them and had been um and I'm commanded by law to arrest that guy and and uh yeah, I I I mean I I struggled struggled with that in my career too because there were times where I knew I was being used and that the law restricted what I could or couldn't do and I I knew that I was arresting someone uh probably because they were manipulated into a situation and then we were called because it was known that we would have to arrest or do something oh yeah and I think especially people that have been maybe I don't want to say in the system of people that have experience with those type of uh, aspects of the law definitely will use that to their advantage. Oh yeah. If, if they get upset or yeah. So I can see. Yeah. That. Yeah. And, and you had to, you know, I do remember there was one, one time where I got called for a PFA violation and the lady answered the door and she's like, I want, I want him arrested for violating a PFA. I'm like, well, where is he? Oh, he's up in my bed. And I said, so let me get this straight. You're in bed with him. And then you decide, you guys get an argument and you decide you now want him arrested for a PFA that you have on him. And uh, I said, see you later. You called the wrong cop. And I left. <laughs> but I could have gotten in a lot of trouble because had that guy turned around and 
because the law is clear that I'm supposed to I'm supposed to make an arrest there. I just I couldn't in good conscience arrest that guy, you know, when um and I'm not saying that's the right decision. Just to be clear, that that yeah. is not I'm yeah. not saying that the that's the right decision. Had that guy turned around and hurt her, I mean I I probably wouldn't have had a twenty year career, I'll be quite honest. <laughs> yeah, because you know, the just, laws yeah, the law states that Yeah, that yeah. he has to be arrested. Yeah. And uh but I just felt like that was just uh, inappropriate, you know, for for her to do that to to be okay with something and then get mad at him and then want to use me to get him out of her house. So, anyways, yeah, those types of things. Yeah, and that's those are just a few examples, right? But it's yeah. just I'm yeah, I probably didn't explain that as as well as I could have, but it's it just the overall aspect of the job definitely. Yeah, those those type incidents repetitively day in and day out definitely wear on you. So yeah. that's that would be one thing that I think the main thing about patrol that I would view as a negative, something yeah. I don't like. Uh, and it's I'm not gonna lie and say it's not a big part of the reason why. Yeah, I think the clock is coming towards the the end of uh maybe uh a long career but i i think maybe i just think that's the one of the main reasons why the job is worn on me maybe more than i thought it would uh just because just because of those situations just over and over and over again and you really don't get a break from it you just right. kind of you kind of uh you just go in day in and out day in day out and you just yeah, you just see that stuff every day. So yeah, it just wears on wears yeah. on you a little bit. You talked, um, you know, when we were offline, you were talking to me about an incident. Uh, you shared with me an incident, um, a domestic violence incident that you showed up on, and and the guy uh, committed suicide in in front of you. How how far into your career were you when that when that happened? I was pretty far into it. I uh, it was right around, I believe it was 2019. So oh, okay. I think it so was, it's pretty recent then. Yeah, yeah. I think it was April of 2019. So okay. yeah. And what was the, what was the call that you had actually got that brought you to that location? Uh, I still remember it pretty vividly. Uh, not surprisingly, uh, it was it was later at night. In fact, it was early morning. Uh, it was later in the shift, so it would have been early morning hours. Uh, I still remember where I was sitting at the time when I got the call, but the call came in basically as, I believe it came in as a domestic, uh, but basically an ex-boyfriend was trying to make contact with his ex-girlfriend at her parents house okay which happens to be in the jurisdiction where i work she retreated to there and she was not staying at her house because she was trying to get away from him he located her he knew where she he knew where her parents lived and located her there and was basically the call came in she called and said ex-boyfriends outside, knocking on windows, knocking on the doors. And this is not 
six o'clock at night, I think it was like two or three in the morning. So automatically it's kind of odd. It's not, it's, 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 it's a little bit more weird than just, Hey, he's at the, he's at the house at four o'clock in the afternoon. Right. So, um, yeah. So I respond down there. I was the primary unit, uh, primary car for that sector. So I got there pretty quick. Uh, I didn't even go lights and siren. There was nothing life-threatening about the incident that was reported to us, at least initially. Um, we got more information after the fact that was not relayed to us. But so I pull into the development and our light bars have that feature, probably most do now, that instead of having flashing lights in the light bar, you can make the entire light bar a big spotlight. Right. And I turned them on because I wanted to be able to see this individual wherever he was walking. I didn't, I didn't want basically to come up on him and be too close and without me seeing him. And I did not park in front of the house. You know, obviously we're all trained not to park in front of the house for a domestic situation. You want to park down the road which I did, like I parked one, one house down, but I still had these lights on. I mean, it was pretty obvious to anybody that would have been outside that this was a law enforcement officer. Um, I know of no other vehicles that have spotlights in the entire uh, right. top of the vehicle. So, and so I'm, I'm getting out of the patrol car and I hear this loud, extremely loud bang. And this was a clear night. There was no rain. There was no wind. There's no storms. But it's funny how your mind works. My mind went immediately to, wow, a transformer just blew. And that thought stayed there for about a second. And I was like, Matt, that wasn't a transformer. And so I looked up in the driveway uh, of this house. And the house was on a little bit of an incline the road slight grade nothing major but a slight grade and the house is probably about uh 20 or yards or maybe 25 yards off the road and i i it was hard for me to see because it was dark but the the lights on top of the cruiser illuminated the driveway enough that i was like oh that guy is he was seated against a vehicle in the driveway. His back was against the back bumper of this vehicle. And it dawned on me almost immediately afterward that I was like, I, I think, I think he just shot himself because I'm pretty sure that's a rifle that's beside of him. I couldn't tell hundred percent, but I was confident enough that I radioed to, to County radio. I, I think he just shot himself. And I, Asked for EMS, obviously, and uh, yeah, got out of my car fully and, and went up to him, and it was apparent that, yeah, he shot himself in the head with this rifle, and uh, it was also apparent that there, we weren't going to be able to do anything to help him. Right. So. What did you find out after, after the fact? You, you mentioned earlier you found something out after the fact about that. Yeah, I think... And this is some of the hardest part uh, about this afterward was we were, county radio unknowingly was sending us into a hornet's nest. And I say that because 
I went around back to the back of the house once other officers arrived and were securing the perimeter of this scene. I went around to the back of the house and made contact with the caller and her parents. And she asked, I think, hey, did he, did he kill himself? And I was like, well, he did. He did. And she's like, oh, yeah. I thought, thought he might. Here, here's what he has been texting me all night long. And here he had text messaged her and said, I'm going to come find you. I'm going to come to your parents' house and I'm going to put a bullet through my head and put it into your car. And that's exactly what he did. So that she did not relay that information to the dispatcher and therefore dispatchers did not relay that information to us. Obviously we would have handled that incident with a man with a right, a loaded rifle fully different than just me driving up one house down, getting out of the car and just thinking I'm going to encounter some guy that's probably a little emotionally disturbed, but certainly not armed. Uh, and so, yeah, certainly would have handled that completely different, but, uh, afterward it just kind of dawned on me and like, wow, I, I mean, that was, that was the first time in my career that I thought if that guy truly did want to take me out, he could have, I mean, he had, he had a little bit of elevation on me. He had a rifle, probably 20 some yards away from maybe 30 at the absolute most. And I didn't see him prior to the gunshot going off. So he obviously didn't choose to do that. Uh, and he saw me pull up most likely and just decided, well, if I'm going to do it, I need to do it now. Right. And uh, yeah, that's what he did. And I remember, I remember right afterward, I, I, I think I messaged uh, two of my closest friends and uh, it was more so just to, uh, just to kind of, I was like, I got to tell somebody about this. Like it was yeah. just, uh, and I mean like immediately after like 10 minutes afterward. And uh, I even went out to an ice cream shop with one of my best friends that night. Then just after I got off duty, I was like, I just kind of want to kind of explain this, you know, run it past you a little bit. And yeah, yeah. He just heard me out. I mean, but that's, yeah, that's what great friends do. But uh, yeah, so that was, that was that incident. It was. So you feel like that, the biggest effect on that for you was just that little check in his head. Had it gone the other way, it could have caused you a great deal of harm. Do you think that is what the thing that bothered you most about that? I think, I think it was basically that. And I, I did not like the sensory overload of all that. That did not, um, that did affect me uh, probably more than I realized for quite some time. Uh, I mean, and I always try to explain this to people that I'm close with. And I feel like it's just so difficult to explain that when you get into a situation such as that, your senses are just completely off the charts overloaded. And I mean, you, you've heard that loud noise. You're now walking up. You're, you're, your adrenaline is like sky high because you don't 100% know what's going on. The uncertainty is, is certainly playing into it. And then you see those. I mean, the, 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 
the imagery, the, the things of uh, the aspect of seeing that individual in that position with, yeah, I mean, his head literally blown off. Right. Uh, and then, you know, the blood and just the smell. There's a, there's a, there's a smell, there's an odor that goes along with that, uh, with the blood and with the, you know, the, the gunshot. I mean, and those are things that you can't, you can explain to somebody and they're like, okay, yeah, I get that. But they can't, you can't understand it until you're, you're, you're in that position. Right. And, um, so, and I, I know that certain personalities probably get affected by that stuff more than others. I get it. Uh, but I think like two months after that, I played fast pitch softball and I was walking underneath a tin roof and a foul ball got hit back unknowing. I didn't know this at the time, but it got hit back and I was just walking underneath it. I wasn't playing in the, in that specific game because uh, there was two other teams playing and this foul ball hit the tin roof and I didn't know it was coming and it went right through me. Right. And this was months afterward. And right. I actually remember, t- actually remember telling one of my friends about it at that time. And, and he was like, wow, PTSD much? You know, do you think he got <laughs> And I was like, I mean, I don't know what the, if that's what it's called, but there's something going on there. I mean, that's not normal. Yeah. You know? And uh, so, yeah. And I think, I think time kind of, kind of heals some of that stuff. It was just... And I don't have any issue with it anymore. And I, even right after I got back to work, I mean, I didn't take any time off work or anything, but there's no doubt in my mind I could have, I could have done anything that we required to do immediately afterward. It was just definitely, yeah, there's some, definitely some volatility there, some emotional volatility, probably some, a little bit more awareness, which this is probably a good aspect of. There was more awareness of, this isn't like a game. This is, real life right and this is just maybe some maturity almost that i think when you're young you kind of like oh, i'm i'm not i'm fine i'm everything's gonna be and you know i i i i look at things eternally as well and so you know i know that i we probably have a little bit different outlook than than a lot of people but i still value life you right know? i still value my life i value my coworkers' lives and lives and yeah i think it just now going to a serious incident, we're responding to a serious incident. And, and oftentimes, example A here, you don't always know when you're going to a critical incident. But sometimes you do. I mean, sometimes when we get dispatched to things, you're like, you know, this is serious. Yeah. And, you know, oftentimes it's two, three, four in the morning and it crosses my mind. I'm like, man, my loved ones are sleeping right now and they have no clue. No clue. And it's just a humbling thought. It's a humbling thought to me that, uh, Police officers, yeah, and this is not a self-inflating comment because I think anybody that knows me well knows that I'm not, <laughs> I'm not into that. Uh, but it's just a humbling thought that police officers are out there and yeah, those hours and their loved ones have no clue what they're getting into, right? And they're still they're still going at it. Yeah. You know? What I think's interesting about that story, and you alluded to it, is just like you. It, it just that incident alone started making you think differently about calls that are kind of similar to that and everything. Because when you were telling me the story, like my response as a police officer working, and, and this is nothing against the way you responded, but my response 
as a police officer working in an urban environment, I would have gone into that assuming that he was armed because I would I was in situations enough that I would have been I would have gone into it already at that. So for the flip side for me in my career, like I got to a super hyper vigilant point where I was literally every single call it might be the one like is this the one, you know, where the hammer's going to drop because I started getting to a point in my career where I was just like, okay, well, I've, I've, this has happened. This has happened. Um, you know, this many times to me, I've experienced it this many times. So, you know, when's the next time? And, you know, am I going to, am I going to be okay the next time, you know? And, um, so yeah, it's just, it's just that interesting, like difference in, in what you perceived when you heard the call, how you handled it. And what, as you're telling it to me, I was already playing out in my head what I would do and how I would how I would go and everything. I just think it's an interesting thing about police work. Yeah, and it's and probably you probably dealt with more incidents similar incidents earlier and more often in your career in the in the urban environment that right. you worked in and you know, you probably had yeah, you probably had more experience with those type of incidents and yeah, and and so that makes sense. The the one thing that I didn't did not mention was, and I think this was put out in the call, I believe so, was he had a PFA issued against him that had not been served yet. So in my head, I'm like, all right, it's three o'clock in the morning. I'm trying to stay awake. Uh, let's go get this guy off this property. Probably give him a no trespass letter. Issue the PFA against him. It's going to be a fifteen-minute call. We're going to be on our way, and we're out. Well, that did not happen. Yeah, obviously. So, and and that's I think the thing you know um, that I say you know police train for that for that bad situation. You can't ninety-nine um, percent of the time. That's exactly how a call like that would go. Just you know, you get there, guy would maybe be drunk just acting like an idiot you you deal with it it would it would go off without a hitch but that 1% of the time like that's kind of what you have to train for because that 1% of the time is what can really injure you or hurt you um or really really go badly and um you know i think it was lieutenant Staltus was talking about how you know officers like operate out of fear then well i don't i don't think it's necessarily fear i think it's a, it, it it can be fear if if they're not confident in their abilities but it's just this idea of you know needing to be prepared for what might what might come and even that can that can uh, wear on you um after a while just constantly being prepared for what might happen when I pull this car stop or when I do this person stop or when I go to this domestic, you know, that sort of thing. Absolutely. I I think, I think if you want to be a good cop, a good cop is a hypervigilant cop. I think I would say vigilant, maybe not, maybe not hypervigilant. Yeah. Vigilant. I think, yeah, that's, yeah, I probably misspoke there, but you have to be aware. You have to be aware, really aware yeah, <laughs> of, of the of the realities of what could occur, right. and I think, I think, yeah, you're right. Hypervigilant would probably not be the appropriate word there because I think extended periods of hypervigilant vigilance is not healthy for us, and even <laughs> I think even as just being 
in that state of just being vigilant and being thorough and really being aware of your surroundings and looking behind you 17 times in, you know, 30 seconds and making, okay, what is that person doing? Why are they have their hands in the couch or what could they have access to? Is there something coming down the steps now? I mean, there, there's a million different things that run through your mind because you're in scenarios and you're in situations where you are unfamiliar with the surroundings and you're unfamiliar with the people. You don't know what they're capable of. You don't even know if they have weapons or if they don't. You don't know if they're on drugs or if they're intoxicated or impaired. And so I think cops, and I think there was even an FBI study that was done, and the cops oftentimes that get what hurt or killed were ones that were looked at as super, super friendly, Mm -hmm. super, super laid back. Yeah. Um, And yeah, I think there's just a good balance to be had there between all those things because there's, there's value to those certain aspects of that, that you can communicate with people well in those situations where if you're completely type A personality times a hundred, you maybe can't communicate with people quite as well. Uh, so, but yeah, yeah, I think you're right. I think just trying to find that balance throughout your career. And I don't know if anybody's really ever mastered that. I don't uh, think so. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't, I don't, I don't know how you would master it. I think, I think, you know, most police officers in any given situation, like good police officers are constantly trying to gain the upper hand tactically. So you're in a situation, you're constantly trying to think about, um, you know, how's my positioning? Um, where are the people at? Who can I see? What corners can I see? Um, and trying to put your yourself in the most advantageous position if something would go wrong. I think some officers get really good at that doing that, and some officers it never fully like registers with them. Like I was around officers in my career where like I would be like, dude, you you cannot do that. You if if it goes bad, um, you know, and you're doing that, you're you're just putting yourself in a bad spot. So just think about, you know, how you're positioning yourself on the car stop, how you're positioning yourself when you're talking to a person on the street, how you're positioning yourself in the house. Like, are you following that person into another room? Or are you just letting them blindly go into a room and return to you? Like all, all those sort of things you start to get really good at. And so you constantly are trying to control your environment because controlling your environment helps you maintain a level of safety. Yeah. So all these things are going on in your head when you go to calls. And then you arrive at a call like that and bam, someone's blowing their head off like literally right in front of you. And, and you're like, man, what what just happened? Right. Yeah. And ultimately, yeah, I agree with everything that you just said. I try to control your environment is key. And then the humbling thing is there's times when you can't control your environment. Yeah, completely. Absolutely. And it's, yeah. I mean, that's just, that's, that is the humbling aspect, but it's the truth. Yeah. And, and that's, it's just human nature. You can't right. always control your environment, especially when there's multiple people there or if somebody just has it in their head, they're going to do X, Y, or Z. Yeah. Yeah. And we've talked, we've talked about, you know, um, you and I have had conversations about your faith and that's where, you know, it becomes, you know, as, as believers, we understand that 
we can't control it. Like we aren't in control, even when we think we're in control, which can also be a comforting thing for us because, you know, we're not in control. God's in control. Um, so for you and, and your faith, like how, where, where did that faith develop? You were, you were telling me a story about kind of when that, um, kind of came at the forefront when you were a teenager and something you had been involved in as a teenager. Uh, can you just explain, explain that? Yeah. Yeah. So I was 16 years old. I just got my license. I think it was two weeks earlier, maybe three weeks. Uh, I had my license for a very short amount of time and I was a car guy. I'm still a car guy. I'd be ahead. Uh, much more financially if I was not a car guy, but I love cars and uh, yeah. And I had a rear wheel drive uh, Thunderbird Super Coupe. So it was a supercharged Thunderbird back in the day. They didn't make them for many years, but I see them now and I'm like, man, they were ugly. But back in the day, I thought that was pretty (laughs) cool. Pretty nice car and it was supercharged. So I thought it was cool. But so I was 16 um, and at the time I lived uh, in a pretty rural area, northern part of Lancaster County. And February 10th, and so it was a warmer day that day. And what had happened was the snow that was on the ground had melted slightly and run across the road. So the road was a little wet during the day and it froze in the evening when the temperature obviously got below freezing again. And so me and my best friend at the time, Pat, uh, were in my car. We were going to go back to my house real quick, uh, and grab a few things. And there was a whole bunch of people. This was still in the age where we like just stayed over at other friends' houses. And we were in like prime hangout phase of our life at this point. And so, my brother actually was in a car directly in front of us and he had a whole bunch of people on or in his car and he was actually getting that far in front of us that I was like, Oh, I want to try to catch up to him. So it was not that we were hot dog in it or we weren't flying. We weren't racing around. Although that wouldn't have necessarily been rare for us back in the day. But at this point, this specific time, we were not doing that. And um, I still remember the conversation I was having with him. We were talking about Corvettes. And uh, yeah, I just uh, hit the accelerator and um, the car ended up spinning, uh, basically fishtailing off. The, the rear end kicked out and I countersteered. I kicked out to the left. I countersteered. It then swung the whole way around to the right in a counterclockwise motion, went off the left side of the road and struck a tree on the, I believe it would be called like the A pillar of the car where Pat was sitting. And uh, the, the car ended up actually, there was that much of an impact that it actually turned even some more and then faced the direction that we were initially going. And uh, so I just remember, I just remember immediately afterward, I was like, well, yeah, I wrecked my car. And I looked over at, uh, 
at Pat and he was unconscious and I got out. His window was broken. I got out, went over and, um, yeah, he was, he was killed instantly and there was nothing that, nothing that I could do to help him. I didn't know that at the time being 16. I certainly would know it now with, uh, the experience of, of this job, but, um, somebody came by pretty soon after that, even though it was a pretty rural road and, um, actually pulled me away from him and she actually was with her son. She actually started praying for me at the time. I got an ambulance. I remember a trooper getting in the ambulance and being asking me a few questions. I don't remember what those questions were. Uh, I went to the hospital and uh, Lancaster General Hospital, and I didn't really have any injuries. I had some scrapes, but nothing, no broken bones, nothing major. And yeah, I remember my dad coming to the hospital bed and I was like, how's Pat? How's Pat? How's Pat? And, uh, yeah, he just told me that, yeah, he, he had passed and yeah. So that, that definitely changed my perspective on life in general, especially at such a young age. I mean, there were some other difficulties going on at that time in my life. And, uh, a, a youth pastor reached out to me. I didn't know him. Uh, never, never heard of him. And he reached out to me via email. I think it was back then. And I kind of just, I remember thinking, having some animosity and didn't really feel like I even wanted to hear what he had to say. Uh, cause I was pretty overwhelmed with everything. And, um, yeah, but I just remember going out back I think it was the day after it happened. I went, my grandpa had a farm that was basically adjoining our property. I remember walking out back and just saying, and just getting down on my hands and knees and being like, I will make something out of myself. And I kind of promised at that time, I was just promised it to Pat. Um, cause I was like, man, I don't know how I'm going to get through this. So, um, yeah. So this youth pastor continued to reach out to me. He was, how did, he was, how did, yeah. How did he get your information? Like, I don't know. Okay. I really don't know. I have no clue. I never actually asked him that. Uh, but because it wasn't the day and age of big time social media, I think maybe MySpace was a thing, but I don't even know if I had a page. Uh, I think it was like AOL chat days, you know? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, he emailed me and I was, I was reluctant. I was, I, eventually though, I think I met with him a couple times and yeah, I mean, he just uh, eventually explained some things that that made sense to me. I don't rem- remember any vivid details of conversations, but I remembered the environment that I met him in. It was like a church in Ephrata, and the people were just really nice. There was something different about these these people. They actually legitimately cared, and I was drawn to that pretty heavily. Uh, and so, yeah, that was the first time, I mean, we grew up going to church, but it didn't really mean, it didn't really mean that much. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I mean, I'll, I'll take personal responsibility. I mean, I, I can't say for anything, anybody else, but I can say for me, it didn't, it didn't mean that much. And, uh, so that was the first time in my life when I met, uh, I'll give him a shout out to Mike Wanger. Uh, he's an awesome dude. And, yeah, somebody who definitely I look up to a lot 
changed my life. But and uh, do you still stay in contact with him every once in a while? Okay. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Cool. Uh, but not necessarily on a regular basis, but certainly it wouldn't. Yeah. We we met up several times throughout the. I mean, I stayed in close contact with him for several years. Um, I even actually joined that ministry for a little while, uh, but then I got got out of that and. Yeah, but uh, yeah, so I just gave my life. I just, I, I mean, I think it's a daily decision, but at that time I recognized my need for a savior. So I, that was the, that was the moment, that was the, the thing in my life uh, that, that prompted that. And I think maybe hitting rock bottom, which was maybe the only way that I would have, ever would have. Um, and it's not all about me. I mean, I certainly still think about Pat's family and, uh, you know, I'm not a guy who thinks the world revolves around me by any means, but I see, I see a lot of good that's come out of that. Right. Despite the, the circumstance that certainly is not a positive circumstance overall. Bright, bright young man, super smart. Uh, yeah. So, so then when you got on the job, you know, you, your Christian faith, you were several years into your Christian faith. How has that faith helped you on the, on the job? I think, I think it's always allowed me to have a, a solid foundation. Um, and, and man, I mean, I failed miserably at times, uh, living out my faith in the job. Don't, uh, don't we all? <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, and I don't, I don't, I'm not beating myself up over that. I, I think, I mean, I'm a human being and the people that know me best know I've failed at other things in my life too. Uh, but I want to be a guy who's known as being authentic and, uh, being sincere and, you know, somebody who can admit those mistakes and learn from them and, and grow in Christ and, and truly just grow in that relationship. Um, but yeah, I think it definitely gave me a, a foundation that many people probably just yet yeah, don't have, uh, where there's just always that hope and there's that always that underlying knowledge of the, yeah, my creator is real. He loves me. Um, he loves you <laughs> whether you like it or not. And, uh, through the difficult circumstances, it's, it has always been that foundation. That's the best way I can describe it. Uh, and it, that, I don't know if it makes the difficult times, it probably makes them a little bit easier, but the human aspect of those difficult times is still very much there. Right. How do you, um, can you like provide any like specific ways like your faith, you feel like your faith has equipped you to do the job or helped you do the job? I think it's probably given me a little bit more purpose. Uh, specific ways. I honestly, I mean, my faith is such a big part of my life that it's, it's hard to ex- try to exclude it in certain areas, but yet I've done that sometimes, certainly. Uh, but I mean, it molds who I am. So yeah, it absolutely 
it, it changes how I react to people. It changes the fact that some people wouldn't be empathetic or wouldn't care if somebody overdoses on heroin and ends, oh, well, it's just one other person that we don't have to. And I never really looked at things that way. I mean, I, I view those individuals as people who are part of God's creation and they're now lost because, you know, certainly because of decisions that they have made, there's consequences to them. But I, that is probably one of the biggest ways it is maybe that I differ in some outlooks and some aspects. And I'm not saying I've always shown this because I've probably shown the opposite at times. And all that is is a tough guy defense mechanism. It's really just a defense mechanism for me because I just didn't know how to react in certain situations well. So you just throw up the defense mechanism, you know. But ultimately, I think the biggest way it's changed me or I wouldn't say quit me, but changed me and changed my outlook is I think it's changed me to at the end of the day, I might not even be able to do it right then in that moment of the call or the incident. But at the end of the day, I'm like, man, those are human beings. And those are people that, that really ultimately need Jesus. Um, and they need that hope and they need that. And I know that sounds cliche, but that's, that's truly what I believe. And so I, I try to, to live that out as best as I can in the circumstances. And, and, and like I said, sometimes that's, that it's really hard. And sometimes I, I'm sure I've failed miserably. Yeah. And you've also mentioned that there's times where you feel like you can't match the job with your, with your faith. Um, what do you, when we've, when we've talked about that, like what what has that meant to you? Where you yeah you just you feel like you just can't match the job with what your faith calls for. Yeah, I mean some of that is time. I mean there's there's certainly restrictions and restraints on what. I mean there's legal procedures that we have to follow in certain in certain things in certain situations and. I mean, and I I do believe that the profession provides a great service to people, even following just those procedures that we have to implement. But oftentimes there's, <laughs> there's just, there's a part of me, pretty big part of me, especially I think as I mature as a young man and grow in my faith, that's like, man, these individuals, just like me, I'm not excluding myself from that. Like these individuals need so much more than this legal procedure that I'm throwing at their face and saying, okay, we'll go to go to this agency or do this, or I can provide you this agency. It's like, it's so obvious to me that these individuals need way more than that. And I can't sit down with them and tell them that. And it's frustrating because yeah, I mean, I've, even just recently, I've seen God work in very real ways in my life. And I think once you experience that, and once you experience the work of the Holy Spirit a little bit, it's like God is very real. He's very intimate. And this legal procedure here that I'm giving you, yeah, it's a Band-Aid. It's not bad. There's nothing bad about it. Right. But 
man, I can't tell you, I can't, I can't tell you what would be even more impactful when it change your life. And yeah. So that's, does that make sense? I think that's, I think that's kind of yeah, I think, the best way I can describe it. I think it. what you're getting at is that the, the policies and procedures at your job, you're, you know, don't, don't allow you to necessarily share Christ with people on a, on a regular basis or even at, even at all. Yeah. Yeah. Correct. Correct. And I think you can show it to them. Right. (laughs) I mean, um, but there's, there's definitely a time and place to even outside of the profession. I mean, you can show people all you want, but there comes a time when you have to have a conversation. Yeah. A meaningful conversation and you need to, yeah. Yeah. You need to care about people enough to do that. And that's, I know that's some of my personality coming out and I think that's, we talked a little bit before, but maybe that's why the job has weighed down on me, maybe a little bit more than on some people, Mm -hmm. uh, just because of those things along with maybe the personality type that I have. So you would say you maybe feel like a desire to provide a little more like ministry and care to someone other than like a law enforcement function. Would I? Yeah, I think, and that has changed. I think as I've, as I've gotten a little bit older, uh, I would not have said that at the beginning of my career. Um, and yeah, I think so. I don't want to, yeah, I don't want to get to the end of my life when that, whatever that be, but tonight or whether it be 60 years from now and be like, man, I was really good at telling them how to get a PFA. Like I was, I was really <laughs> good at that. And it's like, who cares? Who cares? Like uh, you, yeah, I don't want to, I want to make sure I'm not wasting my life and I want to make sure that I'm taking opportunity to make an impact. And I, and the police officers that are out there, we are making an impact by just doing our jobs. I get that. And there is a absolute need for it. And I'm not demeaning anything. Certainly. I'm just saying for me personally, it's, it can be frustrating that it's like, man, I can see the need for more. I can see the need. It's so obvious to me. So there's definitely a ministry part of me that there's a part of me that would like to, yeah, provide that and, and just be truthful in it. And yeah, it's, it's you being vulnerable when you're doing it, but yeah, the job does not obviously allow for that. And, and I get it, but I just think, yeah, I'm just, I'm just throwing my heart out for all your listeners to, uh, (laughs) So they don't know me, but that's fine. I'm just throwing my heart out there. So <laughs> yeah, it's 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 interesting t- to me to just hear you and your take on it because for for me, when I was on the job, I I viewed it as ministry. Like I viewed the job as ministry. I think you know from what I hear from you, you let you you probably have a lot more of a heart for the people you're dealing with on the street than than I did. Um, I generally felt like my my heart in it was for the uh the people i worked with like you know i i saw such a need for hope in in their lives um and I, i'm not saying this is correct like i just i i would like rarely felt that same like draw to like minister to the people i was engaged in day on and day out on the on the street um I think it's just a, a you know bends. There were there were times where I did. There were definitely times where the where the Holy Spirit helped me share my faith with with prisoners or with 
you know, people I was coming across. But a lot of times my bent was towards the people I was, I was working with. That's interesting. Uh, yeah, I can see that. And one thing, one thought that came to my mind there was maybe, yeah, maybe my mind is going more towards the people that we serve. Yeah. Because am I caring a little bit too much about what people think? those those people who I work with am I am I more concerned about what they would think so I I kind of deviate off that and interesting or is it just a natural desire I'm kind of thinking aloud here I don't I don't know or yeah right a natural heart to kind of just have a heart for a more of a heart for I mean ultimately ultimately I'm pretty confident in that if anyone in my life has wants to have a conversation about Jesus Christ, I'm totally game. Like I'm making time for that conversation. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not, uh, yeah. Uh, I think I'm an Enneagram too, which is pretty rare in police work, I think. So I don't know if you break that down for me. I don't even know what that means. Well, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's more of, I've taken a couple of those tests and I think you gotta be a little careful with, over classifying yourself as something that you do on a piece of paper or online. I mean, I think we're more complex than that, but I do find a lot of value in those type things. And, um, the several times I've taken the Enneagram, I've always come out as a, a pretty high two, maybe somewhat of a different number as well. But a two basically is their language. Their main language is love. So they, there's selfless people. They are generous people. They give a lot of themselves and they do it with authenticity. They're not doing it in a manipulative manner, but they also want that in return. So there's that. They almost have that. It was explained to me. I, I watched a YouTube video and I was like, that's perfect. It's absolutely the case. Like he's like, and Enneagram 2 has a tank of like water or whatever their fuel is. And they need that tank to be full in order to give. But that tank has holes drilled in the bottom of it. So it's constantly leaking slowly. And they, yeah, they give and they give and they give out of that tank but they need people to refill that tank. And if it, if they don't, it gets ugly <laughs> and it's like, Oh, well, you know, it just, it, it changes the way they act. So yeah, I think that that's probably a pretty rare personality in, in this profession where one of your main languages is love. Um, I just think that unless the egos are too big that sometimes they don't, let that be seen. <laughs> right. I mean, there's no egos in police work, right? Oh, yeah. No. I've <laughs> never seen any. Uh, but, yeah, so, I don't, I don't subscribe to that. I don't go overly into the Enneagram or anything. I don't think I'm, I just think it's cool to kind of study a little bit and be aware of different personality types. And I do think that's interesting because you live in a, you live and work in a job that is constantly taking so like the way you're describing yourself and your personality, like you work in a job that you're, you're constantly having stuff taken from you. And 
and yet you constantly you know your personality needs that needs that um that tank filled back up yeah and i think yeah and i think i never actually even thought of it that way but it's the truth yeah i and i i'm pretty well actually the people that know me the best would know they would call me uber intentional which i am i'm like uber intentional about uh anybody that's close to me i'm uber intentional about making it happen and getting together and uh making time for those individuals and so and that's why because yeah i absolutely desire to invest in those people's lives but i also need to be filled by them as well so yeah that's it, it it's interesting because i mean seriously some people just aren't they're just that's not how they right that's not how they roll and right. it's not their personality which is it's cool how god made us all different that um you know it might seem almost like a weakness to some but i've i've learned now like that's it's a strength it can be a weakness yeah it can like, be like i would say my greatest strengths can also be my greatest weaknesses and that's you know it's just i think it's that's why you learn about them that's why it's cool to learn about them and learn about yourself a little bit that way and right yeah so yeah i mean i think that's just life i mean i think that anything good in our life can become an idol so in other words if if having that tank filled by whatever it is for you affirmation you know uh pray you know praise from other people whatever whatever that is um that can quickly become an idol in our life and that's what we live for and that's what we perform for instead of living for and performing for our creator and trying to glorify him in what we do. Yeah. Um, 100%. I, and that yeah. 100%. Yeah. You accurately described me there. Uh, 100%. I mean, without <laughs> even trying to do it. And that, that's, that's, that's absolutely the case. And I think probably different people kind of struggle with that, whether they even know it or not in yeah. some way, shape or form. But yeah, I've learned to really that I really just need to stay focused on seek first the kingdom of God and all else will will yeah. fall from that. And and am I good at am I perfect at that? No. <laughs> no. But do but do I have have I learned and matured to the point where it's like, Matt, you've got like that is the relationship that you need to focus on first because if you don't, the other areas of your life will start to deteriorate. And I know it sounds cliche, but I've found it. I've I've lived it to be true. And right. so if I focus on that relationship first, all the other relationships in my life are going to be healthy. They're going to be awesome, wholesome. But that's where I need to get my main fill. And quite frankly, he's worthy of that. Right. I mean, he's worthy of that. Right. Uh, like more than I could ever even imagine. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, and I say all that because me personally um the fear of men and the desire to get the praise and affirmation of other people like definitely became an idol in in my life it helped it what's crazy is it helped me be decent at my job or 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 do well in my job but it also uh nearly like destroyed me and uh so hopefully in an upcoming episode, uh, my wife Lauren might be sitting down with me and, and we might be unpacking my career a little more. And I, I'll definitely get into that testimony a little more. But 
I think we need all different personality types in law enforcement. You have you have guys, you know, that, um, you know, Detective Jevin Miller talked about. You have those guys that you don't want anywhere near the kids <laughs> as that are given getting a tour around the police station. But those are the same guys you want with you when the uh, when the crap hits the fan, um, because they're the guys that are probably going to be able to do things and go through things that other people may not be able to to go through and and do um you need you need you need all types now i will say i think you need more of the types that are able to you know get after it and 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 uh be very uncomfortable um and have that mindset um but again that's just a reflection on my personality yeah. and you know oh yeah and i i want to I want to speak into that a little bit, if I may. Yeah. I, I think that, and, and and I kind of alluded to it earlier, I, I don't think anybody that's worked with me over the last 15 years would ever call me or tell you that Matt Spiller thinks he's a tough guy at work. I just, but there's a switch, you know, after all that Enneagram type two comments that I, or all that commentary I just made, there's definitely right. a switch that can be turned on and I'm sure some of my coworkers are going to listen to this and be like, finally, he finally said that. I mean, he was actually truthful, you know, but <laughs> been truthful the whole time, but there's a switch that you can turn on and go there if you need to. Yeah. And I think that's, if I think the officers that don't have that switch that maybe have more of a personality that maybe, you know, more potentially like mine that, isn't that like super intense hundred mile an hour, more ego driven that you can turn the switch on and you can go there if you need to. Because I think this is my opinion, but I think if an officer cannot do that and can't, can't turn on the go time switch, then I don't really think they should be doing this job. Totally agree. Because I don't think there's any of, my coworkers who would be like, I don't want him there when it's go time. I think they would actually say quite the opposite. Yeah. And, but I think that's why the balance is so awesome. That's right. why it's so critical. Right. So I yeah. just, not that you were alluding to anything else or, or, no, no, or, no. or, or, or insinuating anything else. I just think it's, yeah, I think you absolutely have to be able to turn that switch on in a moment's notice. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I totally agree with you that there are, there are officers that, I've been around and I'm like, um, I, I'll be the jerk to, to say like, I don't think you should be a cop, you know, like, yeah. you don't, I mean, if, if, if this is going to cause you, you know, so much like as a supervisor, those conversations I had with certain officers and I'm like, if, if this, if me having this conversation with you is going to cause you so much anguish, what are you going to do? when something really bad happens, me having a conversation with you and asking you, Hey, what happened is put spiraling you out of control. How are you going to conduct yourself on the street when it's legitimately spiraling out of control and you need to fight your way out of it? Like you literally are fighting to survive. Like there is a switch. And if you can't figure out how to tap into that, then you, you might want to look for different work. Yep. Yeah, 100% agree. And I think that the other thing I thought of was you can't, as much as we do care, I mean, as much as I do care 
or about people, it's almost natural to, and it's healthy to, you can't care too much. Right. Like, because if you do, you're not going to make it. Right. You, you, you can't, <laughs> I mean, you see kids in awful situations. You see death in its truest and truest form not cleaned up not super nice and tidy in a casket and right you see you know the families are just going they're going berserk they're horrified over these events that just occurred and i mean there's a million different things and you can't take that too personally you can't take that yes there's a human aspect that has empathy but a lot of i think a lot of citizens or civilians may look at the police from the outside and be like, ah, like they're just cold hearted. And that's not necessarily the case. It's because you can't take that every call with you and, and, and deal with that incident as if it's your own family or your close friends. Because if you did, you wouldn't make it past the first week. Right. (laughs) Yeah. So you have to learn how to navigate that and kind of, yeah, I just think it's it's an art that you learn. And some guys, I think, quite frankly, do it in unhealthy manners. They'll they'll cover Absolutely. it up with things. And I, yeah, I I I I never want to lose. I never wanted want to lose though, the ability to see human being as a human being, right? Because if I lose that, then I don't want to be doing the job. Right. Yeah, and I think that's a very good desire to have because i i there were times in my career where i i did i i viewed i did not view someone as a human being there were times where i just you know um for whatever reason something they had done uh something they had put me through um you know and i could sit here and say oh you know it was a coping mechanism it was a way for me to compartmentalize that evilness and still drive on if i just viewed them and i'm not even saying like consciously viewed them as subhuman but subconsciously just viewed them as less than because of something they hadn't engaged in um and so i think like having that attitude is just um commendable and and it's so so good and i think i think a lot of officers start losing it you start losing your your compassion in a little bit. I think it was Chief Berkeheiser in his episode said you have, you have um, uh, compassion fatigue where you literally get to a point where you just, you don't feel like you got anything more to give, you know? Um, it's been used up and all you have left is just like a level of anger towards everyone you deal with because here's another idiot who did another idiotic thing and I got to like try to put a bandaid on it that isn't going to solve it. And I'm probably going to be back here maybe even later on in my shift to deal with it again. And you just get like this, like anger, um, towards people, uh, that you deal with. And, and, uh, so don't, yeah, don't ever lose that. Don't ever lose that. I think that's a good thing to have. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's hundred percent accurate. Or at least I can relate to what you just said. I, I, and I think it's important for me. I found that, I mean, I don't have, I have a couple good friends in the department, um, but 
like the closest people in my life are not law enforcement officers. And I think there's, that may be different for other individuals and I'm not saying it's right or wrong. It's just, that's just what's worked for me. Uh, I don't, <laughs> I mean, I may have liked to talk about the job more when I, earlier on the years where, tell me stories. Okay. Tell me, okay. I got a whole bunch of stories from this past weekend or whatever. But now I, I think, yeah, it's, it's amazing how your mindset changes over the course of your career right. and you just kind of, and I think that's healthy. I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but, yeah. um, you know, the one thing that I, I wanted to, yeah, I wanted to kind of ask you about a little bit was, and this is, this is kind of deep, uh, which is who I am. So I don't mind going there. All right, let's go. But it's, so I always had the mindset of if something were to happen to me at work, and this is, I'm asking this in a, because we obviously share our faith, share right. this faith in Christ. And if something were to happen to me at work, I told a couple of close people in my life, I want you to absolutely, if, if a person, whatever, would be the cause of that, I would want you a hundred percent legitimately forgive them. And I feel like that's, <laughs> I feel like that's kind of pushed back on a little bit where it's like, well, they would have done this and that. And I, just by looking at our faith, like I kind of think of the Amish school shooting. Mm -hmm. I don't even know what it was. It was years ago, years and years ago. Yeah. But I heard a story of, and I think it's accurate. I mean, there's stories everywhere that probably aren't accurate, but that many of those parents, I think even in some sort of victim statement or some sort of setting where they were given the ability to, to give their outlook, opinion, basically out, outright said, we forgive you. and. I mean, there's just something so awesome about that where I feel like it really, it's where the rubber meets the road, man, like with, with our faith in this profession. And I always have said, if somebody did something, like I want my loved ones to be like, yeah, do I want them to be best friends with the dude? Probably not. But do I want them to forgive him and maybe even share? that truth and that hope and yeah absolutely yeah because and that's not a statement about me it's a statement about our creator right and and his mercy because that mercy and that grace has been extended to me in infinite ways in my life and why do i think that stops with me if something if someone chooses to do that you know what i right. mean yeah so i guess my question would be yeah i was gonna say do so you my question would be did you ever, maybe this is going too deep, I don't know, but did you ever think about that? Did you ever contemplate that? Or what were your, did you ever wrestle with that, I guess, in your, in your career? Um, I never, I, I don't think I ever legitimately thought about, you know, sharing with Lauren, like, hey, if, if something happens to me on the job, 
Um, I want you to be able to forgive this person. But I think for her, I just kind of assumed that that would be something, you know, as as my wife, as someone who, uh, you know, is a, a believer and and following the Lord, that she would have to work through on her own. It was never something I felt like I needed to uh, portray to her. I think for me and the conversations that I had with her about, you know, if something happens to me at work um, and, you know, I don't make it home, I just want the gospel presented at that service. That would be like my ultimate, um, you know, because I knew, you know, if that would, if that would happen to me that, you know, I would have friends there. Uh, that wouldn't know the Lord, and so that's what I would have wanted the the pastor to share. But I don't think I ever, I never had one of those conversations about forgiveness because I think in my mind I always assumed that would be something she she would work through and my family would work through on their own. Um, you know, my wife and I and I have walked through deep deep waters. In in a, a family situation where forgiveness, the idea of forgiveness and fellowship have been dived into deep, where we're called to forgive, but forgiveness doesn't necessarily mean fellowship. And you alluded to it, like you forget necessarily mean you need to be friends with that person, but forgiveness is something we're commanded to do as believers that we can do by the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives as believers. Um, and so, yeah, it was never something I, I distinctly, you know, had a conversation with her about. But I, I don't think there's anything wrong with having that conversation. Yeah, it's just an interesting thing. I mean, it's just something that, I don't know, I just, it wasn't something I dwelled on. I, it right. wasn't, I mean, this, I, I didn't ask that or make that comment because it was something I like super dwelled on for years or anything it was just you know a random passing thought at times throughout my career it's like i think sometimes we kind of get into a mindset uh as as believers and uh, i've I've adopted a saying lately like being a believer is easy being a disciple is not yeah um and but i think we kind of get in a mindset sometimes that in a weird way that god's just like genie in a bottle that's going to serve us or that that's meant that's the, the, he's there to serve us. And it's like, man, I don't, I think we get it. I think we get it mixed up sometimes Yeah, and we get it reversed and it's like, no, my, my life is to glorify you and I'm here to, to ultimately serve you and you, yeah, your job is not to solely protect me. And so I can make it home to, so I can go live my life and my my way, the way I want to do I don't know. I think that's a dangerous road to go down. With yeah, the absolutely. Lord. Um, and I don't think it's really uh, acknowledging how big, <laughs> right? How big he is. Uh, so, well, yeah. and I think that's just our culture right now is to, to uh, you know, you you said assume God's a genie in a bottle. That that basically is our culture right now, where we, and we ask the question: How does God allow bad things to happen to people? How does He allow the evilness that we see, you know, I, I, I'm friends with police officers, like how that say, how, you know, how, how can there be a God B 
because how, if there is a God, how can he allow such terrible, horrible things to happen to people, to kids? And the question isn't that. The question is, how does God even allow us to live? That's the question. Because, you know, he can't, he, he can't look on our sin. He, he's perfect. He's holy. He's without blemish. The wrath that we, we can't even, in our, in our human minds, like we can't even comprehend the wrath that we deserve. We, th- we, don't, we don't think like that. We think like, well, I'm a, a generally a good person, or why does God allow this evil stuff to happen? Well, really the question is, why am I still here having this conversation with you in this moment? Uh, because my sin, God's wrath should be pouring out on that sin and on me. And it means that I shouldn't even be here right now. He's showing mercy and grace by even allowing me to have this conversation. And uh, that's why our relationship with Jesus Christ is so important because God poured out that wrath on him on the cross instead of me, you know, it, which is just an incredible thing. And when you, when you just can just kind of even understand it, mm-hmm. it's just a powerful truth in your life where you, where you can you can rest in God's mercy and grace in spite of his wrath and what we deserve. Um, I don't even know how I got there, but I just went there. <laughs> we went full Sunday morning right there. <laughs> That's okay, though. I, 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 lo- I, I mean, yeah, I love that stuff, and I love talking about it. And yeah. Yeah, I think, yeah, we don't. I mean, I know I don't understand. We we struggle to understand the holiness right. of our Creator. Yeah, I think. Yeah, and uh, and that's why we expect certain things. Yeah, um, yeah, and we kind of and we're let's be honest. I think as human beings, we're naturally pretty selfish. I think mm-hmm. we think that the world kind of revolves around us, and we deserve this or that. And I think, <laughs> not that I've gone on many gone too many places outside of the United States or going on many missions trips or anything. I've only gone, I think two in my entire life, but anytime you leave this wonderful country and go to a third world country, you really understand just how rich we are and like, Oh, well, I just, my house is only worth like 200,000. Yeah. You're, you're, you're filthy rich. Like, filthy rich oh i have a car yeah exactly you have a car and you have a house you're filthy rich and i mean i went to haiti the one time and there we were like helping build this house that was probably 15 foot by 15 foot four rooms by the way no running water a couple windows and these people they acted like we were building them a mansion I mean, happy, thankful, just, and yeah, I mean, stuff like that brings perspective pretty quickly. And, uh, it's just, yeah, I don't think we understand we, in America we can get, and it's not just America, I'm sure, but 
we can kind of get so wrapped up in our own daily lives and this and that and chasing the American dream. And yeah, I'm just, uh, I think I'm going to be defiant to the American dream until the day I die, because I don't think that's anything we're really meant here to be here for. So, yeah. Um, but at the same time it seeps in. Oh, absolutely. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. And Um, not, not everything's bad in that. I'm just saying, I mean, this is the, I think it's the greatest country in the world and we have freedoms here to, do things that many other countries don't. And I, that's, that's what makes this country awesome. And I'm so appreciative of, man, this, the service men and women who make that possible for us. I think God has blessed this country immensely. And um, yeah, so I'm thankful. I, I definitely try not to take it for granted, but we can wake up and we can do whatever we want tomorrow. And, and we can, yeah. And we have yeah. that freedom. And in many places, many people don't have that freedom. Yeah. And that might be changing. I hope it's not changing, but, um, yeah. And I don't think using our faith or, or trying to, you know, um, speak to our culture or use our faith to, uh, shape our culture in this country. I don't think there's anything, anything wrong with it, but it can't be the only thing, you know, it can't be like the eternal thing but oh man this is a whole nother conversation because now i could go (laughs) completely off the rails and go into uh you know this this whole idea of our nation and what's going on but regardless i i'll stop i'll stop there and i'll say um i really appreciate you coming on i appreciate i've appreciated the conversation um and and just your honesty and willingness to to talk and you know um you know it's good if if you got a lot of people giving you a hard time about it <laughs> that means they're listening to it yeah um yeah. but i pre i do i appreciate you coming on i appreciate you you know being vulnerable and telling telling your story and and uh just talking about those things that you wrestle with as a christian and as a police officer um because I think any Christian who's a police officer wrestles with those things, uh, you know, sometimes in the same way, sometimes differently. So, you know, be safe out there, do the next right thing and uh, get after it. Right. Yeah. And if I can just make one more comment to the the law enforcement officers that are listening, I, I just want to say thank you to the officers who are out there, retired, current, just thank you for, yeah. Thank you for, your sacrifice and thank you for your service and just keep up the good work awesome thanks matt appreciate it Absolutely. of course i really appreciate officer matt spittler uh, coming on diakonos cops calling uh, and talking to me during this episode and i hope you enjoyed our conversation uh, if you enjoy the podcast uh, please don't forget to follow me on Facebook. Uh, Diakonos at Cops Calling has a Facebook page. You can follow that page. Also follow me on Twitter at mtonyw. Uh, next week, uh, the plan is for Lauren to interview me. Um, I wouldn't say I'm looking forward to that, uh, but uh, many of you heard parts of my story throughout these episodes next week will be episode 13 i believe and uh so 
Um, we're just going to dive into my career a little bit more and I'm going to do my best to open up and be a little vulnerable about some of the things I dealt with and uh, throughout my career and, and some experiences I had. And uh, so I'd love if you uh, would tune in for that episode and, and listen to that. And uh, finally, I appreciate all the support, encouragement uh, that I continue to receive every week. Uh, it means means much to me, um, and it it sure outshines some of the negative feedback uh, I've gotten. And and to be completely honest, I, ha- I haven't gotten a lot of negative feedback, uh, but I do appreciate all the encouragement and and. Uh, people reaching out to me every week. So I thank you for that. I thank you for just lending your time and your ears uh, to these podcast episodes. And uh, hey, listen, if you're out there uh, and you're in law enforcement and you're doing uh, this job and you're doing this calling, you know the drill. Kick up the dust in pursuit of the lawbreaker. Uh, Do it every day, every night, whatever shift you're working. And uh, no, I appreciate you.